Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is Ion Veterans Weekend. A roundup of the week's most important stories affecting those who served. Presented by University of Maryland Global Campus. There are nearly 20 million, 20 million military, military veterans, veterans in, in the U.S. Each week, we focus on their stories. Powered by ConnectingVets.com. This, this is CBS Ion Veterans. Ion Veterans. Welcome to another edition of CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. This hour, we'll talk about President Trump and the coronavirus with an Army veteran who ran the Infectious Disease Lab at Fort Detrick, Maryland. I like to say that infectious diseases is not rocket science. If someone is in the same room as someone else who's ill or potentially contagious, uh, that's obviously higher risk than if someone's across the building in a totally different room. We'll also hear what Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has to say about helping veterans suffering from the effects of toxic burn pits. So about 80% of claims have been dismissed because the VA says there's no evidence of a clear medical connection, which we know, know is total BS. We'll hear what our friends at Disabled American Veterans are demanding from politicians this election season. One of the things that we've talked about is that we're able to have Congress mandate 3% of federal contracts awarded go to small businesses controlled by service disabled veterans. And we'll learn about the Ms. Veteran America contest happening this Sunday, October 11th, from an Air Force veteran who has dedicated her life to helping homeless vets. Veterans that are residing there in the shelter was just astounding. I mean, we keep about five veterans a night. And um, it's hard to see that. And when I talk with them, they're not aware of the benefits or entitlements that may be available to them. That's all coming at you next. Let's start this hour off now with something that we saw on TV earlier in the week. And that was when President Trump returned to the White House from Walter Reed Military Medical Center after being treated for the coronavirus. Then there was an article by a former guest on the show that was published in Forbes magazine. The headline read, A doctor who's fought Ebola and other epidemics on handling the White House coronavirus outbreak. 
Dr. Mark Cordepeter is a retired Army colonel, a physician, a research scientist, and a biodefense expert who led research at one of the most hazardous infectious disease labs in the country, Fort Detrick, Maryland. The article began like this. The recent news of the infection of the president, first lady, and increasing numbers of others in the White House circle is made all the more tragic in knowing that it was completely predictable and preventable. But let's move beyond that. This is a national crisis and one of the most important in the nation to get past. Given my work in public health and exotic infectious diseases, I'm accustomed to being on the receiving end of crisis calls from high places, including the White House. One thing my public health professors always taught me is when you find yourself in such a crisis, you need to throw everything at it you can as fast as possible. And drawing upon his experience managing crisis, well, Dr. Mark Cordepeter has some thoughts on what needs to happen right now. So I reached out to Dr. Cordepeter earlier this week and asked the basic question, is it even safe to go back to work in the White House once you've tested positive for COVID? Well, Phil, I think the thing to think about is it, it always comes down to concentration of virus, um, the amount of time in the enclosed space, and, and, whether, and what's the air circulation like. So certainly, if someone is in the same room as someone else who's ill or potentially contagious, uh, that's obviously higher risk than if someone's across the building in a totally different room. So unless they're sharing the same air handling system, et cetera. So I think the bottom line is um, the risk is greatest around someone who's ill. And, and I think it's important to, you know, the reason we do things like uh, have set zones of separation in the hospital or any enclosed spaces is because we know we want to try to reduce risk. So in those zones of separation, it's important to be wearing masks and, and often we'll have the patient wear a mask too, if we're in the same space as them where they're potentially contagious. But it is safe to say that it would make sense for the president to work in his area, maybe on the upper level where the domestic area is for the president and not making big conferences at conference room tables in, in, in single rooms with his staff, right? Certainly, I think uh, the, it's, it's uh, prudent to try to limit direct contacts with others and try to limit uh, the number of people around uh, while he is potentially still contagious. And I think that's another thing is that uh, be very, they obviously have the ability to test for virus and even potentially do viral loads because they have access to sophisticated testing. So I think that's another thing that can be brought into the mix for the management is to uh, they can follow when actually he is contagious and when he's no longer contagious uh, very closely. Mm-hmm. And last question I'll have for you, but I remember quoting you all summer long. Because I talked to you just before my own summer vacation at the beach, and I, I talked to you specifically because I wanted to know if it was safe to go to the beach. Thank you very much for that sage advice. Uh, but I remember something. When you said that the mask is worn specifically by medical professionals, not so much as to protect the person from the patient, but to protect the patient from the doctor. Because, of course, you're wearing it to make sure that no pathogens or no germs or viruses get out. And I thought of you immediately when I saw last night the president get off, walk into the White House, stand there on the balcony facing the South Lawn for a moment, and he took his mask off. And then he went into the White House. Was it smart to walk into that to walk into the White House not wearing his mask after just being discharged? I, I don't know where he was walking. I didn't see the actual video where he went once he went in the building. 
but I would say that certainly while he was outside, I didn't see anybody around him to, there who might be potentially at risk. But once he gets in an enclosed environment, if he's not wearing a mask, that does uh, present potential risk for those around him, especially if they're not wearing masks. You know, like, you know, and I think, as you said, Phil, that, uh, you know, when you're in these environments, the mask wearing is important for both people because it's protecting both of you from the potential risk of of one of the of one of you being contagious. So certainly, I, I would like to think there are procedures that they'll be in place uh, for appropriate infection control. But here again, I'm not privy to what they uh, how they are doing these procedures and what their specific policies are. So I, it's hard for me to try to second guess what people are doing. But bottom line is, as we spoke in May, and it is now October, the same advice still stands, right? Wear the mask, wash your hands, keep your distance, try to do as much as you can do to mitigate the risk. That is correct. Uh, and I think, you know, the bottom line is, you're right, it hasn't changed. I, in some ways, I feel like a broken record. I know a lot of my public health colleagues feel the same way, that we've been, in some some cases, speaking to the air because... You know, uh, people kind of either going to listen or not, and we kind of see that. And, and we see the the, uh, the differences of what happens in some states where they are following what we would think of as good public health policy, and we see, you know, uh, where their cases are low, and we see the completely opposite in certain other states where they're not following it. And so the, the proof is there. It's just a matter of whether individuals want to believe it and, and follow uh, public health guidance. Well, I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I would always hedge my bet on the side of science. And I thank you very much, Dr. Mark Cordepeter, for uh, helping me out and uh, for all your service uh, to the country. I will come back to you if we need another reminder of this. (laughs) I like to say that infectious diseases is not rocket science. We can identify trends and we see those trends across the country. And so, you know, it's fairly obvious if you look at the curves of not only the cases, but then the the death curves uh, follow essentially the cases in pretty much in synchrony time and time again. So I, I don't think it's uh, beyond anyone's ease, ease of comprehension. It's a matter of whether they choose to follow these public health principles. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. Sometimes it takes a PhD and sometimes it takes a cup of mama's common sense. I always appreciate hearing from you, Dr. Mark Cordepeter. And if you want to read more about interesting things, I'll even make the plug for you. Check out your latest book, Inside the Hot Zone, if you want to find out what it's like to deal with some of the world's most deadly diseases. Mark, thank you very much. Great, Bill. Take care. Have a great afternoon. Now stick around, and we'll ask Senator Kirsten Gillibrand what the Senate and House are doing to get medical care and benefits for vets currently sick from the toxins they were exposed to while in the military. Well, it's frustrating because the war on terror uh, has been going on for a long time, and we estimate that about 3.5 million individuals were exposed to these toxins serving in two dozen different countries. That's ahead. On CBS, Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS, Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran and journalist for ConnectingVets.com, Phil Briggs. Now, we've talked about veterans suffering, and in some cases, dying, from diseases related to toxic exposures on this show before. But each time we end the segment talking about a bill that's coming up in Congress. 
And let's face it, watching bills move through Congress is a slow and arduous process. Right now, between the Senate and the House, there are three different bills. So to find out what's up, and to find out when veterans can expect to get the help that they need, I recently spoke with Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Indeed. And, you know, as we last saw each other, it was just outside the steps of the U.S. Capitol on the House side, and there was some racket going on in the background. I was diagnosed with poor lung disease and a toxic brain injury. The mental and emotional trauma is from being shamed and treated like a defendant. But I could tell by the look on your face, that was that was uncomfortable with them making all the noise behind you. They were, they were, but that's what democracy is all about, speaking <laughs> out and being heard. That's why I wanted to follow up with you and hear uh, where we are with this legislation, identify the legislation, and find out kind of where we're going to go. Because it's important to veterans everywhere, and uh, I'm really glad you're stepping up and doing it. Uh, let's first talk the bill itself. It is the Presumptive Warfighters Benefits Act. So this legislation would provide health care and disability coverage for any veteran with a service medal for their time in the global war on terror who is suffering from cancer, asthma, chronic bronchitis, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and several other diseases. Um, These are people who have uh, served during the war on terror and who were exposed to burn pits and other toxins in the line of duty. And we know that when these burn pits are burning jet fuel and clothing and electrical equipment and other waste on these sites, around the globe, massive toxins are being released and causing horrible diseases for our service members. So we want to make sure they get the health care that they've earned. Indeed. You know, I heard John Stewart make that passionate plea that says, hey, if you're a congressman or a senator, would you let them put a burn pit burning trash and waste in your district? And it, Right, exactly. And it just blows me away that this has been... I, I don't know that this hasn't already been addressed. Well, it's frustrating because the war on terror uh, has been going on for a long time. And we estimate that about 3.5 million individuals were exposed to these toxins serving in two dozen different countries since 1990. Yeah, indeed. I have my own family members, which is what makes me passionate about the cause. Uh, I have my own family members that were stationed abroad uh, in some remote, austere places in the world and were exposed. And I know uh, I know my brother might still well be here, um, you know, had had there been benefits available. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the benefits and the health care. There are several bills out there right now that are addressing this or talking about toxic exposures. This one in particular, the Presumptive Warfighters Benefits Act speaks to give veterans both the health care, treatment for their illnesses, and disability benefits. Is that what is the major difference between this and all the other legislation out there? Yes. The other bills touch upon the issue, but they don't require coverage. They don't create the presumption of causation and require health care and disability access. So the other bills leave it up to the discretion of the VA, or it does not provide health care, or it just sets up a system but doesn't mandate anything. This sets up the system and mandates coverage. And so it's the one that I think is the best bill to meet the needs of our service members who are getting very sick and many have died, as you said. Um, We're very concerned that a lot of people were denied coverage 
Uh, we know that about 12,000 people have asked for disability claims related to burn pits in the last 13 years, and only about 2,000 have been covered. So about 80% of claims have been dismissed because the VA says there's no evidence of a clear medical connection, which we know, know is total BS because we know that when you burn jet fuel and you burn all these types of materials and waste, toxins are emitted just like at ground zero, just like on 9-11. Mm. It's illegal to have burned pits in the United States because it is so hazard to your health. So we know that this is toxic and we know it creates deadly disease. With three different bills, several different senators involved, and now even members of the House on their side, how come... Everybody doesn't just sit at one table and go, hey, let's make this, let, let's make the perfect bill. Let's, let's do this. Let's do this one time. How come it doesn't happen like that? Well, that's what we did in our bill. We basically asked all the advocacy groups who were not pleased with these other bills to work with us. And we sat around a big table for several months and wrote the perfect bill. Now, we, I've asked both Senator Sullivan and Senator Tillis to join my bill, and they're both looking at it. So their bills, let's just say, are safer bills. They're not going to be opposed by the VA or opposed by anyone because they don't cost money and they don't do anything. Um, but it makes it seem like you care about burn pits. Um, I think the reason why our bill is better is because our bill was drafted by the advocates themselves and by the families who are suffering. So we brought them to the table, we worked together, and I think that is the difference between our bills ultimately. This one does all the things that you need it to do. But you've reached out to Senator Sullivan and Senator Tillis and said, hey, let's yes, sit and down and look at all of our bills and see if we can, you know, do some horse trading and make the perfect dang bill. Yes. And I think um, in the new Congress, I might be able to get Senator Sullivan to be my co-sponsor. I know it's a process. I know I dumb it down and I make it seem as though, you know, it's, it's, it's simpler than it is. But at the end of the day, you know, for our vets, for my fellow veterans, for the people I know that have served uh, and are suffering, um, I think it's the least we could do. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, you were leading the charge with this bill. Again, the Presumptive Warfighters Benefits Act, which is going to presume that if you were in the zip code, if you were in the area next to a burn pit, you should get benefits and you should get health coverage. Exactly. Exactly right. Now, I know we have an election coming up, and I know the last thing on anybody's mind is contacting their congressman or senator. And frankly, I hate ending segments by saying, contact your local elected official. But I did ask Senator Gillibrand if that makes a difference. She did tell me that those calls are logged, and at the end of every single week, they know how many people have called on any certain issue. She also said this, if you're a veteran that is suffering, you have every single right to call your congressman or your senator's office and demand a Zoom call. They must hear your stories. They must know. I could go on this radio show every single week and broadcast more heart-wrenching stories. But the people that need to do the heavy lifting are our elected officials. So if you are in this condition, if this affects you or your family members, you are entitled to that call. She told me they will address you. So that's the least I can do for this week. Speaking of making some noise, our friends at the veteran service organization Disabled American Veterans are doing just that. They've crafted a list of the things that they want to hammer home to both current elected officials and ones that are running for office. And I recently had a chance to talk to him about it with DAV's National Communications Director, Ashley Burns. Ashley, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Phil, for your uh, military service. You guys do a great job of elevating the conversation on veterans issues, and I am, I am happy to um, talk about the vision for veterans today. And this is where maybe I'm not the strongest, but when it comes to policy, I am always passionate. Let's talk about some specifics with those benefits. Um, I know we want to ensure that there's timely and accurate delivery of all the earned veterans benefits, but what are some in particular that you find, I don't know, um, very important for this next year to make sure that they get delivered? Sure. So, you know, there are some things like, um, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about burn pits, right? Um, the Veterans Burn Pit Exposure Recognition Act, S-2950, um, is a bill that actually was born out of a uh, DAV original idea to formally concede that veterans who had served at times and in specific locations where burn pits were used um, and that they had been exposed to toxins that were known to be emitted from those active burn pits. This isn't the concession of exposure. That idea doesn't establish presumptive service connection for any conditions or disabilities, but it does kind of remove some of that red tape. It takes out one step um, one more burden on the veteran having to prove that exposure. So it really, it, it opens up when, when a veteran should be focusing on recuperating and getting better. Um, they don't need to be bogged down with, with the red tape. Now there's even more on DAV's Vision for Veterans list, and we'll talk about it when CBS Eye on Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Phil Briggs, a Navy veteran and journalist for ConnectingVets.com. Now, a bit later, we'll hear about this weekend's Miss Veteran America competition from Amanda Siddons, an Air Force veteran who's dedicated to helping veterans overcome homelessness. Before we get to that, though, we'll hear more from disabled American veterans Ashley Burns about their newly released Vision for Veterans. It's a list of the issues that they want to force Congress to pay attention to during this election season and beyond. And suicide prevention. I know you guys are doing things there and uh, you have some demands. Uh, what's on your list regarding that? One of the things that, that we've talked a little bit more and I, I think needs to be brought into the conversation is this making sure that we're creating that space between impulse and action. And VA, there's actually a, a bill right now that we've supported um, that goes to that point where it's, it's more about ensuring that every VA staff member who has a touch point with a veteran is able to have that conversation about lethal main safety. And of course, what I mean by lethal means, you know, we, we don't just refer to firearms in that case, um, but also unused or expired prescription medication um, or some other type of structural hazard that could be misused to cause self-harm during a time of crisis. We know that those can be uncomfortable conversations, but training and preparing um, those folks who have interactions with veterans every day is, is going to better prepare them to identify veterans in crisis and to help them make a plan. And as far as legislation goes, or as far as the politicians running for office, making the promises to veterans, is this something that they can do something about? Or is this a shot across the bow to VA saying, hey, VA, do better at this? No, so this is actual legislation that, that DAV has supported. And, and I think it's, you know, veteran suicide and, and mental health. It's something that VA is very well aware of, um, especially right now with the COVID pandemic. People are isolated. People are um, you know, maybe not able to get into the appointments that they need. Um, I know VA has really enlarged their footprint for telehealth services, but this is just going a step farther and saying it's not just a physician, it's every point who touches a veteran, every employee. Right on. 
Uh, let's move to equitable benefits and services for women and minority veterans. Uh, this is something that will come up with our next guest on the show, but uh, I wanted to talk a little bit with you about what your expectations are and what's on your vision for veterans uh, with respect to women and you know their services. Sure. So, you know, we know obviously that the population of women and minority veterans is, is growing and it's projected to continue growing. Um, and we know that there are disparities um, in health outcomes in some cases for minority veterans, whether that be, um, again, in, in specific diseases um, that we're seeing, or if it's disparities in access, like actually being able to, to get into VA care, whether those are some cultural barriers, whether it's, you know, something with um, for, for women veterans, we look at, you know, one in four women um, who use VA care have reported experiencing some sort of sexual harassment. Um, that in itself is a barrier to care. We need to make sure that we're breaking those things down. Um, and, and, you know, while these disparities can have a, a wide variety of causes, uh, we know that it's also incredibly important to continue tracking data on these minority populations, a lot of the things that, that VA tracks. Um, so we can go back and identify, do the research, and start to address those issues um, and close those gaps that do exist. I've heard from women that it is an uncomfortable experience to be in a VA waiting room, and especially those that have experienced, say, a military sexual trauma or a similar kind of trauma. Uh, they don't like mingling in the waiting rooms. Is there anything in the pipeline? Is there anything within the vision for veterans that you have that demands they redevelop or redesign the way a VA's creature comforts feel and look from the minute you walk in the door? Well, there are some facilities that have actually done this already. Um, you know, I, I use the, the D.C. VA facility, and they have a beautiful, um, it, it almost feels like a, a spa when you walk into their women's center. It's, it's really nice. It's well done. It's completely updated. And like I said, it really does, um, it, it puts you in a, a calm mood. It gets you, you know, nice and serene. You're ready to see your provider. And it is private. It, it is a women's only clinic. Um, there are some facilities that not only have these special areas that are, are retooled and redesigned specifically for women, they also have separate entrances because you're right. In a lot of cases, it's very uncomfortable for um, those who may have, you know, experienced military sexual trauma or, or really, you know, any female veteran that might not be comfortable um, kind of walking through a, a male-dominated population. Those are, are certainly things that we're looking to, we're happy to see where it has changed um, in certain VA facilities around the country and, and where they're taking it into account new construction. Um, but we know, as you mentioned, that's, that's not the case across the country, that there are areas where there are women who, you know, it may be pulling the curtain by, you know, and that's kind of the, the privacy that they have. And that's, that's really not the direction that we want to be going. Um, we want to make sure that we're offering women comfort um, and the welcoming environment that they need to be able to access that care, because otherwise they're not going to use it. And and if they're not using it, they're not accessing all the other benefits and care that, that they have earned. And just let that sink in for any candidate running for office, certainly for our presidential candidates. Take care of our veterans, take care of the women veterans and the minority veterans uh, in unique and specific ways. Uh, in our last couple minutes here, there's a few more on the list. Uh, we want to talk about um, expanding support for families and survivors. Um, what type of expansion, uh, how much are you talking or what are you looking at uh, achieving for them? One of the things that I think is really important, um, we talk about providing family members of veterans who suffered from post-deployment mental health challenges or some other sort of service-connected condition 
access to the psychological support and mental health care um, counseling service that, that they need. Um, we know that this not only is important to the individual who's experiencing it, it's important on a whole family level. Um, you know, mental health doesn't necessarily revolve around one person. And if you have someone who's suffering from PTSD, um, that can have a severe impact on the family dynamic. And it's something that, that really needs to be addressed in a more broad way. We can't just put the onus on one person and expect that the family is going to be okay. You know, we see a lot of families break up over things like this, and, and we'd really want to make sure that we're, we're providing those preventative measures and that we're able to, um, to give the entire family access to, to the care that they need to take care of those, those mental health care issues. You know, you ask any veteran, you ask any happily married man, and they'll tell you the caregiver, the one behind everything they do. And it's important to empower them and make sure that they get what they need as well. So uh, I'm very impressed to see that on the list. And uh, number seven here, enhance veterans transition employment and uh, economic empowerment. Uh, certainly that's going to be a challenge this year, you know, because we're coming off this COVID economy. It's just been devastated in so many ways. But what type of things are you looking to ensure that Congress can address or that legislators can do to ensure that veterans are able to turn the corner and find decent jobs? Yeah. So, I mean, as you mentioned, the COVID pandemic has hit everyone very hard, but veterans with a service-connected disability, even just the last few years, have had an unemployment rate that was about 50% higher than veterans who didn't have a disability. So we're seeing that they're disproportionately impacted as our veteran-owned small businesses. Um, one of the things that we've talked about is that we're able to have Congress mandate 3% of federal contracts awarded go to small businesses controlled by service disabled veterans. Um, we think that's an important step um, for these businesses that are, you know, adversely impacted. And even, you know, that's just more of a short term thing and certainly working in a bipartisan manner. That's, you know, I, I can't stress that enough, making sure that we are working in a bipartisan fashion to address these issues is, is critical. But we even have some kind of longer-reaching, more, I guess, visionary things like, you know, we've recommended that um, elected officials consider establishing a new federal works project uh, to guarantee federal employment to service-disabled veterans after they've been discharged from military service. So we've seen prog programs like this have really great success, and, you know, it, it can definitely help with things like, obviously, unemployment numbers, veteran homelessness. So a pretty broad-reaching thing, but we think it's, it's definitely worth something to put on the table and, and talk about and consider. Well, I'm certainly glad you're in the trenches and you're there to defend the rights and ensure that the benefits go to the veterans who need it the most. And uh, I know that Disabled American Veterans as a service organization always has our back. Ashley Burns, Deputy National Communications Director for DAV, thank you so much for your time. And uh, here's to holding their feet to the fire. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Now, when we come back, we'll meet an Air Force veteran who is competing to become Miss Veteran America. I've spent this last year at our transitional homeless shelter where I live, and the amount of veterans that are residing there in the shelter was just astounding. I mean, we keep about five veterans a night, and when I talk with them, they're not aware of the benefits or entitlements that may be available to them. Most of them don't even have DD-214. That's up next when CBS Ion Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy veteran and journalist for ConnectingVets.com, Phil Briggs. Now we've saved the best for last today. I recently had the chance to talk with Amanda Siddons, 
who's vying for the title of Miss Veteran America. Her story of service extends far beyond the military, but that's where we'll start. Air Force, tell me a little bit about it, because it looks like you come from a long line of service. I do. I, um, my mother was, she's retired Army captain. My father was a, he retired as Sergeant First Class from the Army. My grandfather was a captain in the Army, and then I went rogue and went Air Force. (laughs) (laughs) Now, hold on real quick. I'm interested right there. Mom was a captain in the Army, and Dad was a Sergeant First Class. Your dad had to salute your mom? Yeah. (laughs) If their paths ever crossed, I never got to see that, but it would have been nice to see. Wouldn't it, though? I mean, just to know (laughs) that he had to call her ma'am in in certain contexts is great. And it's probably why they raised such a strong daughter. But uh, tell me a little bit about your time. Uh, Arkansas Air National Guard, I see. Security Force Squadron. Uh, Tell me what that was like. Um, It was... It was a great experience. It definitely made me stronger physically and mentally and met some wonderful people. I joined when I was 17. I was still a senior in high school, so I had a lot of growing up to do and learning to do throughout my time. Um, I left in 2007 as a staff sergeant, and during my time, I did active duty, supported Operation Noble Eagle, and it was just a time that I am grateful that I had and I've grown and learned so much from it. Yeah. As I say to everybody that starts so early, I mean, 17, you don't know much about much and you don't even know what you don't know. Um, as you came up through the ranks in the air force, did you feel as though you were sometimes shattering glass ceilings or did you ever feel like it was kind of a heavy moment because you were a woman? Um, It was back in 2001 and you're right. You don't know what you don't know. Um, I turned 18 during basic training, and when I got back, I did graduate a distinguished graduate uh, from tech school, but it was different. There were four women in my unit and about 92 men, so it was definitely, there was no balance there, and it was intimidating at times, and when things and jobs would be issued out, tasks to be done, there were times that I felt being a woman, you know, I wasn't given the offer, same opportunities as some of the men were. I hope, as I'm sure do you, uh, that we are getting better each and every year. I think they're getting better, but we still have a long way to go in regards to gender equality and, and especially looking at supporting veterans after they transition out of the military, you know, for women veterans. We have a long way to go there. And that's another reason why I'm really pleased and interested to see your involvement with this Ms. Veteran America. You went on to be a helper, to be one of the emotional first responders, if you will. You became a licensed certified social worker and a master's degree. Tell me about the decision to do that. Well, when I left the military, I actually went and got my bachelor's degree in uh, elementary education and taught a couple years in first and second grade and thought I wanted to go into administration. And I got my master's degree in education first, but I still felt this calling. I wasn't where I was supposed to be. I would find myself trying to find extra ways outside of school to volunteer and to help. And then after the birth of my third child, I thought this is a perfect time to step back, evaluate what I really want to do, where my calling is. And I was uh, led into social work. And I spent my time, my internship, I graduated this May with my master's degree in social work, but I've spent this last year at our transitional homeless shelter where I live. And the amount of 
veterans that are residing there in the shelter was just astounding. I mean, we keep about five veterans a night, and um, it's hard to see that. And when I talk with them, they're not aware of the benefits or entitlements that may be available to them. And so speaking with them, most of them don't even have DD-214. So after my time at the shelter this past year, I really have this drive to make a difference in the veteran community. My focus at the shelter was on women and veterans, and so Final Salute, Inc., and their mission of um, assisting homeless women veterans just lined up perfectly with my goals. Now the Miss Veteran America competition, streaming online this weekend, will support a great organization, Final Salute, Incorporated, which provides housing for homeless women veterans and their children. And like all of the women involved in this weekend's event, Amanda comes to the contest with a passion and a plan for how to get women vets the support that they deserve. When we're speaking to women veterans homelessness, right now there's a piece of legislation sitting in the Senate. It's the Deborah Sampson Act. And this act will be life-changing for many women veterans. Right now, there's only about 18% of women veterans that actually use VA healthcare system. So this act would... Uh, call for the VA to increase access uh, for women veterans. It would also expand the Women Veterans Call Center to include text messaging, to have uh, female providers on site at all VA health care centers, as well as VA health care for women veterans, such as mammography, reproductive services. And just to make it more universal use and gender neutral to go to the VA, Right now, I mean, I go to the VA, and there are times that it's uncomfortable for me because I've had some experiences during the military, and sitting in a room full of male veterans can be intimidating at times and uncomfortable. And if this bill could pass, that would assist and encourage so many more women veterans to use the VA healthcare system. And once you're in the VA healthcare system, then you become more aware of other services available to you. Absolutely wonderful work, and I couldn't agree with you more. I've heard that from other women. It blows my mind that like, when I went and became a father for the very first time, we didn't go to the part of the hospital that was just a regular part of the hospital. We went to the maternity section, and it was a wing that was designed with rooms in mind for exactly what the woman needed in order to make a successful delivery. There were couches in the rooms. It was set up so that dad could be near mom, so that every part of the critical care could be provided, but it could be done so in a way that specifically addressed the needs of women. And I find it so hard to believe that we can't design wings of VA medical centers with those same kind of comforts in mind. We can't design a place where a woman can go sit in a waiting room and not feel uncomfortable or design something that is just more intuitive to what she needs. How come we don't have HGTV design a VA? You know what I'm saying? Exactly. I mean, that would be perfect. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to see that you are stepping up, you're stepping forward, and you're doing incredible things. The Miss Veteran America contest, again, is this Sunday, October 11th. And Amanda Siddons, you are representing the great state of Arkansas. Uh, I just can't thank you enough for sharing with me a little bit of your story and uh, the great work that you're continuing to do. Thank you so much for this opportunity to advocate for women veterans. Where can I find the show this weekend? You can go to the Miss Veteran America webpage and you can click on, you'll see ticket sales when you log in there, or you can go to 
mva2020.eventbrite.com and order your tickets through there. Outstanding. Well, no matter who walks away with the crown, I just appreciate everything you're doing, Amanda. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. And that's where we'll leave it for this week. Check out this weekend's event and see keynote speaker, Marine Corps combat veteran and mountain climbing inspiration, Kirsty Ennis. See it all at MissVeteranAmerica.org. I'm Phil Briggs, and I'll be back with more great stories next week on CBS Eye on Veterans. Earn your degree online at University of Maryland Global Campus. Meet with our military and veteran advisors in our virtual advising remotely at umgc.edu slash virtual advising. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.